morning. If you take your Bibles and open them to Galatians chapter 3, the title of today's message is God's Divine Order for Leadership. As was the case last week, we'll be looking at a variety of passages. That said, please stand with me. We'll read one passage specifically as a centerpiece to get started. I'll read verses 27 through 29 of Galatians chapter 3. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. You may be seated. Now, most of us are aware what a wonderful truth this passage confirms, especially in the area of salvation. God is no respecter of persons. He shows no partiality. What's more, his word calls us to show no partiality. In a culture that constantly glorifies the haves and the have-nots, God's Word calls all of us to treat and to operate as human beings are co-equal image bearers of God. That we would show no partiality in our desire to love them Equally, just in the same manner that God does for his people. One can certainly look to the sins of our past and see an abundance of abuse concerning ethnicity, economic status, or even gender. That said, one can also see that these abuses do not reflect a proper interpretation of biblical truth and principles. Take, for example, the mistreatment of women. Our text that we just read clearly indicates that God sees no difference when it comes to salvation. No one person can claim that they are greater than the other in God's eyes. Jesus Christ laid down his life for the sheep without distinction. Notwithstanding, our topic this morning concerns leadership. Why are we talking about the lack of distinction when it comes to salvation in matters of leadership? Last week I mentioned to you that my primary intention here this morning is to protect the flock in one specific area of leadership. To expose a dangerous idea. To shine a light on a grave threat to the church. By now, you might be asking, what is it? Even in my email correspondence on Friday, I didn't even give you a question yet. That's coming, I promise. What is this grave threat? What is this danger? Why am I speaking about Galatians 3.28? For it's in that text along with a couple other arguments that God's divine order for leadership is becoming increasingly 
hijacked. Hijacked to support the egregious air of female pastoral leadership. Commonly referred to as egalitarianism. This term, egalitarianism, can be defined as God does not intend for any distinctions between men and women in matters of church leadership. And my goal this morning is to further solidify our foundation here at MCC against this threat. Not to mention to raise our level of concern for churches or individuals outside of this church that would support such view. By God's grace, we've been protected from this deceptive idea, yet let us never grow complacent. The dangers are real. As the largest Protestant denomination in this country today is dealing with two of the gravest threats to the church in critical social justice as well as egalitarianism. Trying to define and determine whether or not these should be allowed to transpire and take place within the church. Let it never be. These two movements are on the warpath. Even if it has not infected our church, praise be to God, we must be prepared. We must be focused on rightly dividing the word of truth, able to provide an answer for the reason of hope that lies within us. As for us today, we'll answer the attack of egalitarianism with a biblical defense of complementarianism. Let me define that term for you, complementarianism. God views men and women as equal in being. Yet in his divine order, he has created distinctive roles within the home as well as the church that serve to complement one another. We can see from Galatians 3.28, that wonderful salvation truth of equality amongst all peoples. However, what does the rest of Scripture have to say about equality in relation to distinctive roles within that equality? This morning we'll seek to answer the question, why should we defend complementarianism, this truth that men and women are equal in the sight of God, but yet given distinctive roles within the home and within the church. Four answers will certainly protect us from this dangerous ideology, as well as further solidify us and our commitment to obedience in the scriptures. Our first answer, number one, is creation's order. Creation's order. What better place to start than the beginning? Turn back to Genesis chapter 2. A very familiar passage. Genesis 2. Verse 18 reads, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. I cannot reiterate it enough. This truth, this reality that men and women are equal that we have no right to act as though a man is superior to a woman. 
That is not God's view. It should not be our view. Those of us that have the beauty of understanding the marriage relationship fully understand that we're mutually dependent upon one another. Myself, extremely. Some of you might understand that dependence more than others. Nevertheless, we cannot neglect the order of creation and the roles that follow. Man was created first. And the woman was created to be his supporter. This word supporter has nothing to do with inadequacy. It conveys, however, though, a sense of governmental priority, if you will, for the man. That being said, let's continue by turning over one chapter to chapter 3, verse 16. I want to make and show you a parallel connection with chapter 4, verse 7, which continues to shine light upon creation's order and God's divine order for leadership. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. After the fall we begin to see its effects. 3.16 reads, To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, hold on to these two words, desire and rule. And look over at chapter 4, verse 7, for this parallel connection. Chapter 4, verse 7, following the context of Cain and Abel. We see in verse 7, If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Now, these are the same two Hebrew words which provide the perfect interpretive parallel. This is, in essence, the beginning of the battle of the sexes, if you will. In a world without sin, Adam's responsibility for headship and leadership, and Eve's glorious role as a helper would have certainly been understood. Unfortunately, though, with the advent of sin, the woman's inclination now, because of the fall, is to usurp her, God, her husband's God-given responsibility of leadership to take from him. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, you can make a note and reference that later, Paul addresses this in affirming Eve's disobedience. So, at least from the creation account, we're beginning to see this divine order that God has established. However, turn over to the book of Romans, chapter 5, for one more convincing observation, very important for us to see, surrounding creation. Well, we are fully aware that Scripture clearly demonstrates that Eve was the first guilty party in creation. However, how does God view Adam's responsibility in the fall? Romans chapter 5, I'll read verses 12 through 14. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed for there is no, when there is no law. 
Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Did you catch that? God holds Adam responsible for sin and its subsequent spread to all of creation. Why is that? Because he was called to lead and he failed in that calling. We might say the buck stops with the leader. As we progress through these answers, we'll continue to see them founded in creation. And this is absolutely imperative for us to understand, especially in light of the opposing argument. One that would state that this belief is simply surrounding first century culture and no longer applies to us today. This truth that these biblical foundations are grounded in creation is a monumental truth for us and defending and being able to understand that complementarianism is simply a human word that expresses what the Bible clearly communicates. We cannot allow the wounds of the past or current, and this is the key word, hypocritical abuse to open the door for destructive violation of God's divine order for leadership. Distinctive roles within Scripture are by no means harmful. As a matter of fact, they're abundantly good and beneficial to creation. With that said, let's examine that particular statement in our second answer, and that is distinctive roles. Distinctive roles. Turn over to the book of Ephesians. Galatians, Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. I'll read verses 3 and 4, along with verse 7, and then 13 in order to demonstrate a key point for us surrounding these distinctive roles that we see within Scripture. Ephesians 1, beginning with verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Turn over to verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And then one more in verse 13. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now this is critical for us to catch. Even within the triune Godhead, there are distinctive roles and specific benefits for God's people. It was the Father who chose us. It was the Son who redeemed us by His blood. And it is the Spirit who seals us. An orthodox understanding of the Trinity clearly communicates that we worship one God in being. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. We looked at that passage in detail several months ago. 
However, we also fully understand that our God is three separate persons, co-equal persons with distinctive roles. Not to mention, we also see within these distinctions voluntary subordination. Don't need to turn there, but you can make a note and reference it. John chapter 6, verse 57. For it's the Father who sent the Son. John 15, 26. The Son who sent the Spirit. And then John chapter 16, verse 13. It's the Spirit who speaks what He hears. So even within the triune Godhead, we see distinctive roles and we see voluntary subordination. All the while understanding that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are co-equal. Not great, one not greater than the other. However, the Trinity is certainly enough in and of itself. Where else do we see distinctions within the scriptures turn over to Ephesians chapter 5 I made it easy for you we're already in that book I'll read verses 22 25 and 33 many of us are very familiar with these incredible passages and verses Ephesians 5, beginning with verse 22, reads, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then, verse 33, Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Once again, we continue to see the cause and effect of God's divine order. With the distinctive roles of male headship and female submission comes the incredible, glorious benefits of self-sacrificial love and respect. We see the same display of divine order and corresponding blessing in Ephesians chapter 6. We won't go there. But Paul speaks to the distinctions and the blessings that follow when it comes to children and parents. Managers and workers. All that to say, Scripture is loud and clear in its affirmation of equality, while at the same time just as clear in its support of distinctive roles within our economy. Well, before we move to our third answer, the question, why should we defend complementarianism? Allow me to offer an illustration, perhaps for greater clarity. Suppose there was a tenured sergeant in the military, years of service under his country, seasoned and tenured in what he knows to be his role. And yet, he's called to be under leadership to a fresh, brand new second lieutenant out of military college. Now, in some sense, I'm sure we all would agree that that sergeant probably brings, in some respects, more to the table than that fresh, brand new young second lieutenant. <laughs> I love it, Doc. <laughs> oh. How 
However, what would happen if that sergeant failed to embrace his distinctive role in submission to the chain of command? Order and efficiency when it would inevitably be endangered. Now, all analogies on some level fail. But hopefully you're beginning to see the ramifications of subverting structure and order in God's divine order for leadership. Now this is just the tip of the iceberg. As jellyfish leadership within churches is spilled over into weak leadership within homes. Instead of a rock-solid commitment to the veracity, the truthfulness of Scripture, a spineless compromise is spreading like a virus. That's where you get that term, jellyfish, spineless. As for us, by God's grace, let us be found to stand resolute against the spiritual forces of wickedness. Forces that are seeking to pervert the scriptures, to pervert God's divine order. And our third answer, let's turn our attention to history and some specific responses to the detractors to this biblical theology. And number three, that is biblical history. When it comes to the topic of biblical history, especially in this discussion, we need to briefly deal with a few exceptions that seemingly provide a counter-argument to what God clearly communicates. Before I touch upon a couple of those, it's critical for us to understand several essential overarching truths concerning biblical history. The fact of the matter is, is that in all of biblical history, there is not a single woman that is an inspired writer of Scripture. Secondly, there is not a single woman that has an ongoing, and that is key, prophetic ministry within Scripture. And thirdly, proper biblical interpretation never allows for us to utilize the exception or the less than clear to overrule the clear commands of Scripture. The unavoidable truth is that God rarely, if ever, speaks through women prophetically in leadership capacities within Scripture. This is unavoidable. That said, let's tackle a couple. I'll briefly make a couple comments on several and then dig a little bit deeper into one that is utilized on the other side to pose the counter-argument. Whether we're dealing with Huldah in 2 Kings 22, Philip's daughters in Acts 21, or even Priscilla, the wife of Aquila in Acts 18, it's essential for us to understand that these accounts are in essence private and individual matters of ministry. And what's more, and this is a massive truth in what is called hermeneutics, the science of biblical interpretation, that these accounts are descriptive, not prescriptive commands, describing situations or circumstances often within a narrative of what is taking place during that time rather than a prescriptive command to the church. 
What about Deborah, though? I stated we'd look at one in detail. We'll take her up. Or was she not one of Israel's judges? Deborah was certainly another example of descriptive versus prescriptive. But there's much more. Turn back to the book of Judges. And I want us to compare Deborah with some of the other judges to begin with and make one key point and two others as we progress forward. As I read several of these verses, I want you to hear God's appointing, God's empowering of these specific judges. Chapter 3, verse 9 reads, When the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them. Othniel, the son of Kinez, Caleb's younger brother. A couple of verses down, chapter 3, verse 15. But when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them. Ehud, the son of Gera. Turn over to chapter 6, verse 14. Speaking of Gideon, the Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? Or, Chapter 11, verse 29. Now the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah so that he passed through Gilead and Manasseh. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. And then, what do we see with Deborah? Turn back to chapter 4, verse 4. Remembering that essential element of descriptive versus prescriptive. Empowering those many judges sent by the Lord. In chapter 4, verse 4, we read, Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidus, was judging Israel at the time. Descriptive versus prescriptive. We at least see that there's no mention of Deborah being appointed or being empowered for ministry. Not to mention, we also see from this passage, we won't read the verses, but you can take a glance at verses 6 and 8, 6 through 8, that Deborah actually wanted Barak to lead. And in his weakness, he failed to lead. And then in verse 9, we see Deborah actually rebuke Barak for his failure to lead. She said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take. All throughout Judges, from an application standpoint, we see the judgment of God upon his people, a people who desired to do what was right in their own eyes. Sound a little bit like our culture here today? In Isaiah chapter 3, verse 12, make a reference, you can look at it later. Isaiah proclaimed that women ruling over men was a sign of God's judgment. Isaiah said, O oh my people, their oppressors are children and women rule over them. 
O my people, those who guide you, lead you astray and confuse the direction of your paths. And yet, in our culture, in an attempt to befriend the world, to be more relevant, or possibly to atone for, once again, hypocritical abuse of the past, our door of compromise is growing more and more wide open. And wolves are fleecing the flock. Before we move to our final and most powerful answer, prescriptive answer, perhaps two quotes set the stage for us as applicable as they are from the prince of preachers himself and the doctor himself. Charles Spurgeon said, I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. <laughs> that is so perfectly appropriate for the day and age that we live in. How would the doctor himself, Martin Lloyd-Jones, respond to that quote if he was having a conversation with Spurgeon? Both of them are having a conversation probably together in heaven today. Dr. Jones would say, the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. Love that. Our fourth and final answer to why we should defend complementarianism is biblical teaching. We've mentioned the normative principle and biblical interpretation concerning the danger of using the exception or the less than clear to overrule the clear. Let's finish with the hammer and the crystal clear directives from the Word of God concerning God's divine order for leadership. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. As we think about 1 Corinthians 14, it's important for us to understand the context of leadership here pertaining to what that looks like surrounding the apostolic gift of tongues. Following that context, follow along with me in verses 34 and 35 of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. The women are to keep silent in the churches, but they are not permitted to speak, but are subject themselves just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Whoa. I need to explain that one, don't I? especially given all the magnificent women we have in this church. Does this mean that women are never allowed to speak in the church? Of course not. The context of leadership specifically attached to tongues is helpful. What's essential for us to see is the principle of female submission 
and male leadership in the church and in the home. Additionally, and this is massive, make another note and reference it later concerning the context of this letter as a whole. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we will see once again these distinctions, this divine order rooted, grounded, founded in creation. It's not about just a cultural dynamic that no longer applies today. What about our manual for how we do church, though? By God's grace, we have that in the pastoral epistles. Prescriptive commands for the church and how we are to conduct ourselves Turn over to 1 Timothy. First Timothy chapter 3. I'll read verse 15. In this monumental verse speaking to the emphasis, the focus of how we are to conduct ourselves. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, Paul says, But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of truth. Beloved, did you catch that? The church is the pillar and the support of truth. We might ask, why is there so much rejection of truth prevalent, not just within society, but within churches? It begins with a cracked foundation. A cracked foundation that is endangering, if I were to say, our skyscraper of truth. Or could I mention it this way? Like a crack on a windshield. A small mark of egalitarianism is spreading and splitting across our windshield of truth. The church, which is called to be the pillar and support. And yet this letter specifically was written for the very purpose of establishing a proper foundation on how we are to conduct ourselves. Speaking specifically of that foundation. What is God calling us to hold firm to when it comes to his divine order for leadership? In the same book, turn back to chapter 2, 1 Timothy. I'll read verses 8 through 13 as we consider what God is calling us to do, how we are to operate within his divine order in the church, the pillar and support of truth. 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning with verse 8, I'll read through 13. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man but to remain quiet. 
For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. You know, the clarity of truth here is absolutely unambiguous. In verse 8, we see the importance of men leading in every place. In verse 11, we see quiet submission concerning instruction for women. In verse 12, the case is as open and shut as it gets. Paul says, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And then in verse 13, once again, creation is listed as the foundation of this truth. We won't go there. But our argument continues to be solidified in Titus chapter 1, in chapter 2, in 1 Timothy chapter 3. In these sections, we see the importance of women teaching women. We see the qualifications for biblical eldership, church leadership, utilizing words only as man, he, and husband. So, let's wrap this up with a couple final comments. It's important for us to remember that if men lead according to his divine order in the church and in the home understanding as we discussed last week their proper view of stewardship Christ is the head men are called as slaves to Christ to steward their homes to watch over their homes, men in the church to protect, as we discussed last week, to feed and to heal the flock with Christ as the head. That structure is designed to bring blessing and favor and never abuse. Blessing that involves, yes, strong leadership. But at the same time, love, compassion, humility, patience. We could go on and on when we think about how our Savior loves and leads us. Now, this is the type of leadership that any person desires to sit under. What's more? It's absolutely necessary for us to affirm that all men and women have access to all of the gifts that the Holy Spirit disperses. This is an argument that is constantly made on the other side of the fence on why we cannot accept complementarianism and distinctive roles because it hinders specifically women from having access to all of the gifts that Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians speaks directly to. But this couldn't be further from the truth. For example, we have women in this church that are gifted by the Holy Spirit with the gift of teaching. Praise the Lord. Use it to teach other women. This is what God's word calls us to. And then finally, as the storm of culture attempts to redefine 
God's divine order for leadership. We must be resolute to to stand firm, to stand against deception, to stand upon Scripture alone and all of its incredible benefits that flow forth from obedience. Scripture's creation order, Scripture's distinctive roles, biblical history, and biblical teaching, prescriptive teaching, all serve to bolster our stance, to empower us to be found faithful, to be obedient in God's divine order of leadership. Pray with me. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word, your precious word, that at times cuts down deep. But Lord, we desire to hear your word and to be found practicing and doing it. Lord, we thank you that you have given us instruction, that you have given us principles that set us up to experience the blessing and favor of God. Lord, we thank you that you are not a respecter of persons, that you show no partiality, that you see us as men and women co-equal in the same way that there is no superiority amongst the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. There is no superiority amongst men and women We are mutually dependent upon one another. But Lord, let us be found faithful in the roles that you have given to us in order that you might be glorified in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray.